Uh, so I'm reading Daniel chapter 12, and it's on page 888 from the Bibles in the foyer. At that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. There will be a time of distress such as not has not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, close up and seal the words of the scroll until the time of the end. Many will go here and there to increase knowledge. Then I, Daniel, looked, and there before me stood two others, one on this bank of the river and one on the opposite bank. One of them said to the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, How long will it be before these astonishing things are fulfilled? The man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, lifted his right hand and his left hand toward heaven. And I heard him swear by him who lives forever, saying, It will be for a time, times, and half a time, when the power of the holy people has been finally broken, all these things will be completed. I heard, but I did not understand. So I asked, My Lord, what will be the outcome what will the outcome of all this be? He replied, Go your way, Daniel, because the words are closed up and sealed until the time of the end. Many will be purified, made spotless and refined, but the wicked will continue to be wicked. None of the wicked will understand, but those who are wise will understand. From the time that the daily sacrifice is abolished and the abomination that causes desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. Blessed is the one who waits for and reaches the end of the 1,335 days. As for you, go your way till the end. You will rest, and then at the end of the days, you will rise to receive your allotted inheritance. Uh, the Matthew reading is uh, Matthew 25, starting from verse 31 to the end to uh, 46. Uh, it can be found on page 984 in the Church Bibles. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in, heaven, in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate pe the people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when do we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When do we see you, a stranger, and invited you in, or needed clothes and clothed you? When do we, when do we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, I tell you the truth, 
whatever you did for, for one of these, the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty, or a stranger, or needing clothes, or sick, or in prison, and did not help you? He replied, I tell you the truth, whatever you did not do for the, uh, for the one of those least of... Uh, correction? Start again. Um, he will answer, I tell you the truth, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. When the penguins of Madagascar saw that one engine had stopped working and the other engine was no longer on fire, they knew they were out of fuel. And so they made an announcement to the passengers on the plane. There's the good news and the bad news. The good news is we are landing immediately. The bad news is, it's a crash landing. The real world is full of bad news and good news, isn't it? You only have to watch the news to know that most of the news is bad. And they tack on something at the end which feels nice to know that there's some good news in the world. Some people like to avoid the bad news. They don't want to hear it. As Christians, we can be a little like that. We want to think that everything will be good now that we are Christians. But Daniel 10 to 12 shows us that to be wise, you need to know the bad news as well as the good. So let me pray that we will accept the bad news and be able to trust the good news. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you tell us the truth. We thank you that you revealed the future to Daniel. We thank you that you are in control of the future. Father, help us to understand this passage this evening, to accept the bad news about living in this world and to trust the good news of being your people. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The whole of the book of Daniel is set with God's people in Babylon. They are in exile and they are subject to cruel, wicked kings. His people are faithful and God delivers them again and again. But they are still under judgment. They are still in exile. Yet in chapter 8, we had to skip over 8 and 9, Daniel read in the prophet Jeremiah that God would bring that to an end that the desolation of Jerusalem would only last 70 years. So in the first year of Darius, also known as Cyrus, he prayed, chapter 9. He confessed their sins, 
he pleaded with God to act. And God answered. Not just would he restore the city and temple of Jerusalem, but, chapter 9, verse 24, he would put an end to sin, atone for wickedness, and bring in everlasting righteousness. Well, that was good news. And God delivered. In that very year, the first year of Cyrus's reign, this new king, the king of Persia, decreed that God's people could go home and rebuild the temple. The exile was over. Their sins were forgiven. They would be citizens of Jerusalem again, and it would be the kingdom of heaven on earth. Strangely, that decree, the announcement of the end of the exile and going home, is not even mentioned in the book of Daniel. Isn't that extraordinary? Such a piece of such extraordinary good news is not mentioned. Instead, Daniel is told the bad news. And that's chapter 10 to 12. You see there in chapter 10, verse 1? In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a revelation was given to Daniel. Its message was true, and it concerned a great war. Well, no, war is great. Clearly, this is bad news. And amidst the introduction to seeing, to describing this vision, we're told, verse 14, that... This vision is to explain to Daniel what would happen to your people in the future. For the the vision concerns a time yet to come. And so in chapter 11, Daniel is told what will happen to God's people. It's a hard chapter to understand, but not because it's full of weird things. Do you remember chapter 7 with strange and wicked and scary beasts? It's not like that. It's quite straightforward. It's about kings and wars. But because it's so unfamiliar and there is so much detail, it's hard to follow. It's like when I read a book called A Short History of England. 2,000 years of English history in a short book. I'd always known that there must have been the first seven King Henrys of England, but I knew nothing about them. And so it was very hard to follow all the details and hard to remember it all. So it is with chapter 11. But essentially, it's a tale of two kingdoms. Two kingdoms of the north and the south. Start there in verse 2 of chapter 11. Now then, I tell you the truth. Three more kings will appear in Persia, and then a fourth. He'll be far richer than all the others. When he has gained power by his wealth, he will stir up everyone against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king will appear who will rule with great power and do as he pleases. After he has appeared, his empire will be broken up and parceled out toward the four winds of heaven. Daniel was already in the Persian Empire, but this empire would not last forever, the Medo-Persian Empire. There would be a Greek Empire, started by a first mighty king. That's Alexander the Great. Conquered the ancient world, the whole known world, by the age of 30, and then promptly dropped dead. And his kingdom was divided into four. The story then follows 
two sections of that division. The king of the north and the king of the south, who are at war for the next three centuries. Clearly, it's kings of the north and kings of the south. The story is a bit like a great state of origin battle. It goes back and forth between the north and the south. And for a while, the people of the south are on the offensive and doing well, as I believe at some time in the past happened in the state of origin, though none of us can remember. That's verses 5 to 9. Then, verses 10 to 20, the kings of the north, we understand this, were on the rampage and doing well. And like the state, of the, the state of origin, they use every tactic they can. They slaughter one another on the field of battle. And then off the field, they use whatever strategies they can find. They marry off their daughters to find to uh, form alliances. And at one point, one of them actually steals the gods of another, verse 8, to try and get some advantage. If you're into history, it's a great history lesson about the pride of kings, the deceit of kings, the mistakes of kings, and the futility of war. It's an example of chapter 7, that human kings are like beasts who destroy people. But why is Daniel told this? How does this explain what will happen to God's people? The Israelites, Jerusalem, are not even mentioned. But that's just the point, I think. Think about the geography for a moment. The king of the north, that's Syria, and the king of the south, that's Egypt. What's in between? Where are they going to be fighting these battles? In God's land. In Jerusalem, amongst God's people. That's even mentioned in verse 16. The invader will do as he pleases. No one will be able to stand against him. He will establish himself in the beautiful land and will have the power to destroy it. Now, I know you're all thinking clearly that's the first reference in the Bible to the Hawkesbury, the beautiful land. But to Daniel, at least, he didn't know that. He thinks it's Jerusalem and God's land. God's people will be like a bunch of ants in the middle of the field in a state of origin match. And as the players go back and forth, thuggerizing and slaughtering each other, they will destroy God's people. What is the future of God's people back in the land? Well, they will be forgiven. But it will not be the kingdom of heaven on earth. Here is the bad news. They'll return but they'll be at the mercy of human kingdoms. God's people will be caught in the crossfire of human evil. But the bad news gets worse. They will not just be caught in the crossfire of human evil, they will be in the firing line. From verse 21, it focuses on one particular king of the north. Verse 21, he's a contemptible person. Like all the rest, he struggles to secure his throne. He wars against the people of the south, but he especially hates God and hates God's people. 
Do you see it there in verse 36? By his words, he will say unheard of things against the God of gods. Not just his words, verse 31, he will desecrate the temple and set up something called the abomination that causes desolation. What will he do to God's people? Well, he'll corrupt some of them, verse 32, and those he can't corrupt, he'll kill. Verse 33, by the sword or by the fire, or he will capture or plunder them. Who is this terrible king? This is the Hitler of the ancient world, a man called Antiochus IV Epiphanes. I know you've never heard of him. But he hated God and he hated God's people and tried to destroy them. What is the future for God's people? What is Daniel told? Here is the bad news. Your sins will be forgiven. You'll be citizens of Jerusalem again, but you'll be caught in the crossfire of human evil and you'll be in the firing line of human evil. That was the bad news for Daniel. And the bad news for us is that it's just the same. We are forgiven. We're citizens of the new Jerusalem if we trust in Jesus. But we are still caught in the crossfire of this world. Just this week on the TV news, as the hurricane was approaching Haiti, a lady was uh, interviewed, clearly a Christian lady, and uh, she was concerned about the hurricane that was coming, but she said... It's okay, we know that God will protect us. The hurricane has come. She may not be still alive. We have no promise to think that she will be. For that's what it's like to be in this world. Whether you're Christian or not Christian, you're caught in the crossfire of a fallen world and of human evil run rampant. And so the Christians in Syria, the Christians in Mexico, the Christians in the Philippines, the Christians here suffer through sickness, through accidents, because we live in this world. And not just caught in the crossfire, Christians are in the firing line. The details match pretty well for this Antiochus IV up until verse 40. And from then on, it doesn't really match. He's a pattern of others to come. He's not the ultimate one. It keeps on going. We experience it a little from the media and our own family and friends. But in other countries, they get it from their rulers from their government. I was reading on the ABC news site the other day. The Chinese government, which has always been anti-God and wants to unite all its people by just giving them prosperity, is clearly threatened by Christians. There are at least 30 million Christians in China. Most the experts think that by 2030 there'll be more Christians in China than in any other nation in the world. One of the pastors was interviewed. He said, my only allegiance is to Jesus Christ. Do you think the communists will put up with that? No. They've enacted new laws. They're about to bring about new persecution to force Christians to swear allegiance to the communist government. They'll destroy churches. They'll arrest Christians. They will kill Christians. Will they be delivered, these Christians? No. No. 
But this is the bad news of the real world. Christians are caught in the crossfire and are in the firing line. Now, do you believe this? Are you able to accept the bad news? Or are you keeping your head in the sand? God wants to tell us the truth and he wants us to be prepared. For that is what it's like to be God's people in this world. We need to accept the bad news and we need to trust the good news. In chapter 11, it certainly seems clear who's in control. Every sentence, really, the subject, the actor, is one of the kings. They're not always successful in what they do, but they are the ones doing things, making decisions, making things happen. But it's clear as you read chapter 11 that someone else is in control. We don't notice it really because we don't know this period of history. We know nothing about it. But those who do know something about this period of history are amazed by the level of detail that is predicted and is correct. So much so that many people say it couldn't have possibly been written during Daniel's time. It has to be written three centuries later. How could anyone know these details? For it's very different, isn't it, looking at it, to what you get in the astrology charts in the magazines. You'll meet someone today who has an important prospect for your future and your life will change. Could be anything or anyone, couldn't it? But as you read through the predictions of chapter 11, they are specific. They don't name names, but you need, don't need to name names. How can that happen? How can God reveal that ahead of time? Because he is in control. History is his story. So he can tell future history. There's other things in chapter 11 as well. Again and again it says they will try this, they will do this, but it will stop at the appointed time. Have a look at verse 27. The two kings with their hearts bent on evil will sit at the same table and lie to each other, doing their very best to win, but to no avail because an end will still come at the appointed time. Verse 29, at the appointed time. Verse 35, at the appointed time. Appointed by whom? God, of course. And that same point is made at the end of the vision when Daniel asks when this will happen. Chapter 12, verse 6. How long will it be? Well, he's given a cryptic answer, verse 7. It will be for a time, times, and half a time. Many people have puzzled over what that could possibly mean. I think the best explanation is this. A time times and half a time. How much is that? Three and a half. And in the Bible's language, seven is the number of completion, the right amount of time. Three and a half is half of that. It is cut short, do you see? These kings are not in control, but God ends it 
at the appointed time. I think that's the meaning of the weird numbers at the end of chapter 12, 1,290 days. It sounds like an extraordinary long time, doesn't it? You get out your calculator, divide it by 365, and guess what? Three and a half years. It's not that long. God will bring it to an end. God is in control. That is the good news, isn't it? That in the turmoil that we see in the world, as we see Christians are caught in the crossfire and are in the firing line, we know, no matter what, that God is in control. Which immediately raises a question, doesn't it? So why is he doing this? Why do God's people fall, verse 33, by the sword or be burned or captured or plundered? Imagine seeing that with your own eyes. God is in control, so what is he doing? Well, verse 33, it, it tells you. Though for a time they will fall by the sword or be burned or captured or plundered. When they fall, they'll receive a little help, and many who are not sincere will join them. Some of the wise will stumble, so that they may be refined, purified, and made spotless until the time of the end. Does God have a purpose in this? Is he in control with something in mind for his people? Yes, that he would purify them and make them spotless. Is that the same? Is that true for us? Yes, you see there on your outline from 1 Peter chapter 1. For a little while, you may have to experience trials of many kinds. These have come so that your faith may be proved genuine. God is in control. He has a purpose in mind for your good to purify you. That's the first part of the good news. The second part is even better. God will deliver his people. Up till now in the Old Testament, resurrection has not been clear. In Job and the Psalms, when God's people cried out, they knew somehow that there must be more because God's people were killed and not delivered. God must deliver them somehow, but it was like they were groping in the dark. It wasn't really clear and definite until Daniel 12. They will fall by the sword and be burned, but, chapter 12, verse 1, at that time your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. It's clear that God will deliver his people even from death. And those who are wise will shine in glory forever and ever. For us, it's not just clear, is it? It's certain. If you think about Jesus for a moment, when the kings of the earth and his own people turned against him and he's caught in the firing line and it seems like God is out of control, it was just at the appointed time. At the right time, by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, he died for our sins and was raised. And he said, a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear my voice 
and come out. The bad news. God's people are caught in the firing line, caught in the crossfire and are in the firing line. But the good news is God is in control, will purify his people and will deliver them. Sometimes in one of those good news, bad news jokes, it sort of works as a joke because the good news hardly counts. The patient was lying in his bed and both of his legs were broken. And the doctor came and said, uh, I've got some bad news but, uh, and some good news as well. The bad news is we're going to have to amputate both your legs. The good news is that the patient next to you wants to buy your sneakers. The joke sort of works because the good news isn't that good. And we're not quite sure whether it's okay to laugh, are we? But in Daniel 10 to 12, it is not like that joke. The bad news is extraordinarily bad. For God's people in this world, we are caught in the crossfire of human sin and in the firing line of opposition to God. But the good news is extraordinarily good. God is in control and purifying his people and God is in control and will deliver his people. The challenge is, will you accept the bad news or put your head in the sand and think that everything will be rosy for you. It will not. The challenge is, will you accept the bad news and trust the good news? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are in control and so are able to tell us the future. And in your kindness, you do. We thank you that you tell us the truth. You tell us the bad news and do not hold back. So, Father, help us to accept and understand and believe this bad news that it even applies to each one of us. Father, as we accept that bad news, help us to believe, understand and trust this very good news that you are in control, purifying your people and will deliver us out of death. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.